Well, good morning again. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, chapter 6. We will be looking at both of those this morning as we continue on in our sermon series through 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is the last, uh, what I would call, large section. From here on out, we kind of limit it to one chapter as we go through this uh, wonderful letter. But uh, uh, this morning, uh, both of these kind of tie together, and so we're going to look at them together. You know, as I read these two chapters, they are not easy chapters. Uh, they are quite difficult chapters, in fact. Um, and Paul writes with great angst and even uh, a little bit of anger as he responds to some of the things that are happening in the church of Corinth. As I begin to pray over these, uh, these chapters and, and hear the words of Paul, uh, I, I just I, I, I wanted to know his heart better. And, and so I begin to pray that over these chapters. Like, why, why is he this way? Why does he write this way? Why, is, why are we seeing these emotions come through the words that, that are given here? And I thought uh, as, I, as I prayed over that and as I looked through that, one of the things that stood out to me is this is the heart of a pastor who is grieved. Paul loved the gospel. He loves Jesus Christ more than anything. And so for him to see the gospel taken and to see it tainted, to see it corrupted, to see it misrepresented, broke his heart. Not only that, but he loved this church. Go back and read the first nine verses of chapter 1. He had a great desire for this church. He had a great hope for this church. And so to see it overtaken and, and to see that its members fall back into patterns that they had before their salvation and for them to just look like the rest of the world, it, it broke his heart. And so he writes chapter 5 and chapter 6 out of great concern for their gospel witness and out of great concern for their own soul. I pray that as then, in turn, as we read chapters 5 and chapter 6, that we would come with great humility. That we would desire the same things that Paul desires. That we would desire the same thing as our Lord Jesus Christ desires. That we would desire to know Christ better. That we would desire to go deeper with Him. That we would fall in love with the Gospel that Jesus Christ has come and that He has died and was resurrected for our sins, that we may have eternal life and that we may have a relationship with God eternal. I pray that we would have a desire for the church, that we would love her so much that we would desire to do everything in our ability to protect her and to protect her witness. I pray that we would have a desire for individuals to do whatever it takes to see that they know Him. That they know our Lord and Savior. Even if it seems odd. And for those of our friends that join us here this morning that you have never, you would not describe yourself as a believer, you would not describe yourself as having a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you would see the depths of 
of God's love, that you would see the depths of His seriousness about sin in our lives and, and what that results in, and that you would see to the links that He will go to to have a relationship with you. And I pray that all of us this morning would hear the Word of God and that we would respond to it. We are going to read the entirety of chapter 5 and chapter 6 this morning, a little bit lengthy passage. Um, and so I understand that if we get part of the way through this and, and you need to take a seat, then we understand that. But it, at the beginning, it, would you please stand with me here as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Again, chapters 5 through chapter 6 this morning. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, already, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Chapter six. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before un the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the right unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and these are two heavy, difficult, confrontational passages. And Lord, you have written them so that we may grow closer to you. You have written them out of your love for us and out of your desire to see us be the holy children of God that you have called us to be. That you laid your life down so that we could be. I pray this morning that you would help us to see what you would have us to see in these passages. That you would unfold for us your wisdom and your truth. And that you would help us to respond to it. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You can have a seat. As Paul writes to the church of Corinth, In chapters 5 and chapter 6, he is greatly distressed. This is not the first time that he has written to them. We see there in the middle of chapter 5, he says, or towards the end of chapter 5, he says that he has written them a letter before, and in that letter he had talked about some of the very same things that he's writing about again here. And he is readdressing this issue because it has not been taken care of. And so he begins to address some of the sin that has infiltrated this church and some of the things that have gone horribly wrong in in this place among these members. He starts off by talking about sexual immorality. This church had, uh, as we see at the end of chapter 6, they had gone back to looking like the world. It says that many of them have gone back to the practice, the, the custom of visiting prostitutes. And this was a cultural norm in Corinth. There were temples, there were Greek temples all over, uh, Roman temples all over the city. And at most of these temples, there were prostitutes who you could visit. And, and supposedly that gave you a closer to connection to whatever God you were, you were with or whatever God you were worshiping. And it was for both genders. It didn't matter. This wasn't just a man-only thing. This was women as well. And so they would go to these temples and the Corinthian church had fallen back into that practice. At least some of them had. Paul looks at them and he says, what, what are you doing? 
He reminds them that, that they're no longer themselves, that they're to look different, they're to be different, and yet here they are looking and acting exactly like the world around them. They have misunderstood the gospel of grace and it has caused them to just go back to whatever they were doing before. Not only that, but we see at the beginning of chapter 5 that they have come to accept even worse than that. At the beginning of the chapter, he talks about our, uh, or an individual, he talks about an individual who has, ha, is having a relationship with what we think is his stepmother. It's a relationship that even among the Gentiles, even among the lost, was not tolerated in anywhere but Corinth. Laws of the day would have made this illegal. It would have forbidden this. People would have been, at the very least, cast out of the city, except for in Corinth, which was a place of great debauchery and evil. And yet the church, rather than seeing this action of this individual and the actions of themselves, rather than seeing those things and saying, oh my goodness, what is happening? We need to to deal with this. Rather, they have opened up their arms and said, hey, well, all are welcome here. Everything's okay. He deals not only with sexual morality, which was a huge problem in this church, but he deals with lawsuits among believers. Apparently, they had grown so prideful, apparently they had grown so arrogant among each other that they began to look for conflict among each other. And what they were doing was they were actively bringing lawsuits, they were suing one another in in the courts of the day. And if this wasn't bad enough, he tells us in verse 7, or sorry, verse 8, he says, "It's, it's wrong You yourselves are wrong and defraud. You even do it to your own brothers. These weren't just lawsuits over simple things. These were lawsuits because they were actively trying to defraud and to cheat and to lie and to steal from each other. He says, what are you doing? What are you doing? That you have gone so far from the unity of Christ that we are called to that now you actively seek to deceive one another. He said just bringing the lawsuit in the first place is defeat. That in itself is bad enough, but you are you are bringing lost or you are bringing your lawsuits before lost people and showing them darkness. You are staining the gospel. He says all of this comes out of pride. Ultimately, we, saw, we talked about this last week, that ultimately every problem that this church was dealing with, a large part of it came out of pride. He says in chapter 5, starting in verse 2, he talks about the issue at hand, and then he says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. And then in verse 6, it says, your boasting is not good. Paul, Paul cries out to him and he says, look, you have thrown your arms open and you have said in your heart that you are better people because you have accepted these things. He said, but that is the exact opposite of the response you should be having. 
There should not be pride and arrogance that you have done these things or that you have allowed these things or that you are accepting of these things. Rather, there should be grief. When it says there, ought you not rather to mourn, the idea there is grieving over the loss of a family member. He says, look, your brother, or the person that you thought was a brother, that was a member of this church, by his actions, has called into question his salvation. The fact that he is living in sin and is unrepentant of this sin, over and over is is calling into question whether or not he truly is born again. You have, at the very least, possibly lost a brother in Christ. You should mourn over that. You should be heartbroken over that. You should grieve over that. But instead, you have thrown open your arms. Thrown open your doors and said, it's okay. It's evidence that they misunderstood the gospel. Looking in verse 12, he quotes a few things. In, sorry, in chapter 6, verse 12, he quotes them. Notice that, that part of 12 and 13 are put in quotes. Oftentimes we read these verses and I think we miss the quotation marks. And so we think that Paul is making this statement in totality, but he's not. He's quoting them and then he's responding to their thought process. It says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. He says, then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. The church says all things are lawful for me. He, but he responds, but I will not be enslaved by anything. The church says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and another. This church, in their pride, had misunderstood the gospel. The gospel that, of grace and mercy from God that sets us free from slavery to sin. And they hear freedom. And that's good. We do have great freedom in Christ. As believers, we have freedom of, of our Christian conscience. It's why he talks about in Romans that some of us are going to respond to some situations one way and some the other. But as a whole, we, we do have that freedom. And, but they had taken it to the extreme. The Corinthian church had taken it to the extreme. Of That means we can do anything. If we are free, if we have grace, if God's going to forgive us of our sins, if He's going to show us great mercy, if the cost has already been paid, then we are free to do whatever we want. Paul responds to that and says, you do have freedom, but it doesn't mean that all things are good. All things are helpful. You do have freedom in Christ. But that doesn't mean that you get to ignore Scripture. It doesn't mean you get to ignore the clear commands, the things that have been forbidden, the things that are to be done. Just because you've been given grace and mercy doesn't mean we get to abuse that grace and that mercy. He says, you're right, you are free. You are free from slavery to sin. But it doesn't mean you should run back to it. He said, look, you... You have taken God's grace and the freedom that He's given you and instead of following Him, you have instead just turned back to the things that were enslaving you beforehand. 
We're not to have any master except for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we gave our lives to Him, when we accepted His invitation of grace and mercy, we confessed our sin, we repented saying that we would no longer do those things, that we would follow after Him, and we made Him our Lord, our King. Paul's saying here, you can't have two kings. You're either following Him, or you're following the world and the flesh. And if that's the case, then you are still in the flesh. doesn't mean that we're perfect, just in the sense that we don't make that are normal. He says you can't have to. You can't have to. They say, well, the food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. What they mean there is that the body has specific desires and pleasures that it wants to satisfy and that we should do whatever we want to satisfy those things, whether it be gluttony or whether it be greed or whether it be lust. The body has those things. It's natural. And so we should just pursue those natural things. Paul says, don't you get it? Those things are going to be destroyed. As we sang about earlier, we come to the cross that we may die. We put to death the flesh. We put to death those passions and those desires that the world has. And we live a new life with new passions and new desires. Paul says those things are done. Those things are over. And yet they have misunderstood the gospel. And because of that, they have now tainted their witness. Can you imagine the rest of Corinth as they looked at this church who had this individual who was living so openly a life of sexual morality and sin and they went okay so what's the difference if they're allowing that what kind of people are in that church can you imagine the others in Corinth who they look at the lawsuits that are being brought petty things that are being brought before the courts and they're hearing about all of the disunity and all of the distrust they see the fraud that takes place between the individuals can you imagine them looking at that church and going why would I want to be a part of that if that's, what the, if that's what this Jesus Christ produces in the lives of His followers, why would I want to do that? Well, what difference does that make between what we're already doing? They had stained their witness. They had misunderstood the gospel. They had stained their witness. And then in their pride, they had done disservice to the person. In their pride, they had done great disservice to the person. This individual who is taking these actions, these blatant, obvious actions, that to Paul clearly called into question this individual's salvation. The rest of this church had said it's okay, and they had continued to allow him to be a member. They would continued to allow him to be a part of the family. And what they were conveying was, you're okay. What they were conveying by allowing this to happen was, everything's fine. When in the reality, everything was not fine. Everything, actually, this individual was in grave danger. Either he was in grave danger of the discipline of God Himself, or he was in grave danger that his own soul was lost. Paul's comments here make it clear that we should be concerned about that situation, not accepting of it. He says a very 
unusual thing there in verse th- chapter 5, verse 3. He says, Though I am absent in the body, I am present in the Spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That seems harsh, does it not? That seems unusual that Paul would go to the links to say that they are to take this person in the power of Lord Jesus. By the way, meaning there what Jesus talks about earlier in the Gospels when He says that what, is, what you bind will be bound and what is unleashed you will unleash. Saying that the, the church has authority, not an individual, but the whole church has that authority. He says you are to deliver this man to the destruction, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Hand him over. Paul uses similar language in 1 Timothy to talk about two individuals that he's done this with. What does he mean by that? I think he means a couple of things at the very least. He means, first, I think there is a, a, a reality of being handed over the flesh that, that this man would experience the consequences of his actions, whatever those may be. On the second hand, I think it's important that we understand that part of what Paul is talking about here is that when we hand some over Satan, what we mean is we're treating them as lost. We no longer consider them part of the brotherhood, of the family of God. And we've talked about this many times before. But when we get to that point, how do we treat lost people? Do we simply ignore them? No, it becomes a rescue mission at that point. It becomes an act of love at that point. It's not a rejection of the individual. It's, an under, it's helping the individual to understand their place before a holy God. Look, we need to get to the point where we are concerned more about an individual's soul than we are concerned about how they think about us. I want the individual to know Christ more than I want them to like me. Can you get to that point? Are you to that point? It's a difficult place to be. It's why part of the reason that we're called to do it as a church and not called it to do that as individuals. Notice as well, before we move on to the next point, that we're called to do that as a group or the, and, and inside of the church, not outside of the church. He says there in verse 12 at the end of chapter 5, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We're not to, we're, we're to make this a family thing. Christ gives the layout of this when he talks about that you know, if you see an individual in sin or, you, or an individual that has, is in unforgiveness, then you go to that person and you, you express to them your concern and your hope that they will repent if they refuse to do that then you go with uh, one or two other people if they still refuse then you bring it before the church not a committee not a not a pastor not a group of people but you bring it before the whole church and then at that point if they choose to still be unrepentant then you take the extraordinary act of excommunication again not out of not out of hatred but out of love for that individual that they may know that everything is not okay. We have 
as Paul is speaking to this church, he's reminding them of their responsibility to protect the church. To protect the church. Again, the responsibility to protect the church lies with the members. He says there in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world or greedy swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, I'm not calling you to be monks that live in a monastery that completely separate themselves. To do so would mean to not accomplish the mission of Christ. You have to be in the world to be ambassadors to the world. But I am In verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he was guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We have a great responsibility. We have, and it is a shared responsibility to hold one another accountable to the true gospel, to care about one another's souls to the great depths that we will do whatever it takes to know that that individual, to the best of our knowledge, understands the Gospel and knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Whatever it takes. We shared that. It's not any one individual's place to do that. Why do we do that? We do that for the purity of the church. Again, Paul shares somewhat of an unusual passage there in verse 6. He says, you're boasting, or chapter 5, verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread, uh, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That, that's an odd thing for us to read, partly because we're not Jewish. We, we don't practice Passover on a regular basis, and so we don't understand the, all that's going on here. But suffice it to say that for the Jewish person, for their culture, leaven was seen as a connection to sin because of its ability to infiltrate and then to spread quickly and to transform whatever it touches. Not that leaven's bad. If you eat leavened bread, you're not a horrible person, okay? But... That was just the symbol for sin in that culture. And so when it came time for Passover, they would remove all of the leaven for the household to the point where they would even go around on their hands and knees and look for crumbs of leavened bread to get that out because that was how serious they knew that God takes sin. And so they desired to remove all of it from their lives, all symbol of it from their lives for those three days while they celebrated. And then they celebrated this great event of Passover where God had sent the angel of death upon Egypt and the angel would go into each home and the firstborn would die. Except for those homes where the blood of the lamb was over the doorpost. And for those he would pass over. He wouldn't enter. And God spares them from death. Israel was not more innocent than Egypt. They just simply put their trust in the true God who showed them grace. 
In the same way, you and I, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is nothing we earn. It is entirely His grace and His mercy that's poured on us. And it is His blood that is put over our hearts. It is His sacrifice that, is, that has taken our place. And now, now, when we come to death, no longer is it the end. No longer do we step into the, the punishment, the eternal punishment that we have earned. But rather, the blood of Christ covers us and we are declared innocent. Paul says that should be cause for celebration. We should come to the festival and celebrate our Passover that God has shown us great grace and great mercy. And yet, this church, these individuals, had allowed the leaven to stay in their hearts. The very thing that made it necessary for the sacrifice in the first place, they had allowed to stay there. One of, uh, one of the great theologians of our time said that we will never fully understand the gospel, never fully understand the impact of sin until we stand before the cross and we recognize our sin there. Have you had that moment where you stand before the cross and you understand that the blood that runs from His brow and the blood that runs from his pierced hands and feet, from the blood that runs from the wounds on his back, and from his face that was beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable. Have you stood before the cross and seen those things and known that it was your sin? That it was your sin that made that necessary. When you do that, you cannot be prideful any longer of your sin. And as you begin to understand the depths of that and the depths of what Christ has done for you, then He will increase your desire to get rid of the leaven. Paul's point here is that if you understand the Gospel and understand what Christ has done in your life, then you will understand the need for holiness and the call for holiness. And you will want not only it in your life, but in the life of the church, that we may celebrate together what He has done. This is also important because it makes the distinction from the world Distinction from the world. We are to look different. We are to be different. That was part of the problem here with Corinth. They had gone back to the things that they had always done. They went back to the idol worship. They went back to the the prostitutes at the temple. They went back to the acceptance of anything goes. They had went back to doing whatever satisfied their own pleasures. And in doing so, they were no longer distinct. They were no longer different. They were no longer salt or light. Rather, they joined everyone else in darkness. This is what happens when we just become accepting of whatever. Whether it's in the church or in our own lives. We lose that distinction that Christ has placed in our lives. We lose the the right to be ambassadors in other people's lives. Again, this doesn't mean that we're perfect. None of us can stand here and say we're perfect. All of us have things that trip us up. All of us have things in our lives that we wish were different and that we desire to do differently. All of us fail at different points during our day, certainly during our week. 
But our overall life should be marked by distinction, not, not by compliance. Again, what must have the Corinth church or the Corinth, the city of Corinth done and thought when they saw a church of Jesus Christ who acted exactly the same way they did, if not worse? In the same way, what do people do? What do people think when they look at our lives? When they look at our church, do they see distinction or do they see compliance? It's a heavy topic. And it brings us face to face with our own sin. It brings us face to face with our own shortcomings, with our own pride, with our own acceptance of things in our lives. I, I don't know how many times this week, and I pray that the Lord gives me the strength and the wisdom to follow through on things, but I don't know how many times this week that I, I would sit there and I would, I would be in the middle of a project or the, I'd be in the middle of, of something and I would think to myself, is this different or is this compliant? Is this distinct or is this the same? Is this something that the world wants me to do and that the world expects for me to do that I have just allowed into my life and said it's okay, it's no big deal? And in secret, I've made it an idol in my life. In secret, I have made it something that I sacrifice my time and my energy towards in the, at, the, at the expense of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we should never have fun. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy things. We must ask ourselves continually, is this controlling me or am I controlling it? And then when we see places of, of difference, when we're confronted with these things, much like Paul confronts the church here at Corinth, then we must confess. We must confess. Sin is like mold. We, uh, when we were tearing out our cabinets in the kitchen, one of the things we realized in our house was that uh, there had been a fire there back in the late 50s um, and that uh, they had put the fire out, but they had never dealt with any of the water damage. They had never dealt with any of the fire damage, really. They had just covered it up. And so when we removed one of the cabinets in, in the corner of the kitchen, that whole part of the wall was just mold. It was one of the scariest, grossest things that I've experienced. And I just looked at it, and I didn't even know what to do. I mean, part of me was like, let's just burn the house down. Like, grab the photos, and let's just walk away. But it had been there, and it had been allowed to grow because it wasn't seen. Because it was in the dark and in the shadows. And yet it was destroying our house, and ultimately it was destroying our health. It was amazing that when we got rid of that, like, we felt better. We didn't know why we had been feeling bad. We just knew, you know, you had a runny nose once in a while. You, you know, you sneezed maybe more often than normal. But when we began to root out this mold, and then we were like, wow, like we actually can breathe in our own home. This is fantastic. Sin is the same way. Sin presents itself as a good thing, and then it works its way into your life. And if it is not exposed to light, it will grow. And it will begin to destroy things. And it will begin to make your heart sick. And you will never even know why. And you will continue to hide it. And you will continue because you're embarrassed by it. Because you just can't believe that it's there. 
I mean, there was a debate when I practiced this whether I should even tell you that there was mold in my home because of the, like, it feels dirty. It feels guilty to even admit that. And it wasn't even our fault, right? The same is true with sin. We get guilty and we get dirty and we feel horrible about it, and so we just continue to hide it, and it continues to go larger and larger. When we're confronted with our own sin, we must confess. We must confess. We must get the sin out into light. It is only by light that we can begin to see it destroyed. We must repent of it. We have a a saying in our household that you're sorry, but you're not repentant. You're sorry that you did that in the sense that you wish you wouldn't have been caught. But you're not repentant in the sense that you're going to continue to do it or you're going to continue to try to get away with it. I mean, it's the same like we've all experienced either in our own lives or we've seen it in the lives of others that, you know, when a mom asks two siblings to apologize to one another or, or one in particular to apologize to another and the, and the one that must say I'm sorry walks up to the other with their head down and their shoulders slump and they grumble the words I'm sorry. <laughs> they may be sorry that they were caught. They may have a feeling of guilt, but they are not repentant. They do not see the need to change. They just know they were caught and now they're in trouble. In the same way, when, we, when our sin is exposed and we come in confession, we must repent. We must repent. Have a desire to be different by the grace of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. We must desire to no longer pursue those things. doesn't mean that they will instantly be gone and will no longer be tripped up but certainly that is our goal that is the direction that we head we should be not only should we confess and be repentant but we should hold one another accountable we should seek out accountability not only in our personal lives but in our church life to have people in our lives who love us enough to say I'm worried about you to have people in our lives who care about us enough to say hey brother sister you are You are on a dangerous path in this part of your life. And I'm worried about your soul. Out of love, out of compassion. You know, one of the favorite, probably one of the most well-known verses in the world is not John 3.16, but it's it's judge not that you might not be judged. We love to throw that out. And, and it's compatriot as well to take the speck out of your own, or your log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of some others. We love to use those passages but we don't like to look at the context. The context is not about judging one another in the sense that we don't ever hold one another accountable. It's not about not helping one another with difficulties. It's about making sure that we are open to the same thing. To understand that we ourselves are in need of that same accountability. Not to set ourselves on a pedestal and think, well, I just need to help all these other people that haven't figured it out yet but rather to be open with one another. Take the log out of your own eye, yes, so that then you can take the speck out of another. We're to hold each other, one another, accountable. Out of love and compassion, out of a desire to care for one another's souls, out of a desire to keep the church distinct and pure. And then lastly, we're to celebrate. Look there in chapter 5, verse 8. We read this just a moment ago. It says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. 
Not with the old leaven. Not with the things of, not with malice and evil. Not with the things that, that delude us and kill us eventually. But rather with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth of the gospel that's been given to us. Let us celebrate confession, repentance, accountability. They are, at times, painful things. And at the very least, they are uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable. We all recognize that. But the end result is celebration. The end result is worship. The end result is the purity and the distinction of the church that she may be the light to the community that she was put in. That should be our desire. That God would be glorified in our lives as we run after Him to be holy as He is holy. To identify the things in our lives that hold us back from that. To identify the things in our lives that keep us from a a deeper relationship, a more meaningful relationship with Him. And to put those off. What gains it? What What benefits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? We value a lot of things that are temporary. We value a lot of things that just don't matter in the long run. Will we be willing to confess that and to hold on to the things that are eternal, that are truly valuable? Maybe this morning you're here and you you know the and have felt the weight of of mistakes in your life, of of difficulties in your life. You have looked for freedom, you have looked for for healing, you have desired something different than what the world has to offer because you've tried it all and and you've been chasing it all and it just comes back empty at the end of the day. Christ extends you something better. Extends you something more fulfilling. Extends you something that is eternal and will last if you will just accept it. This morning I pray that, that you would just have that conversation with Him, that you would confess and repent and and know him as your savior if you if you need help in that or or have questions about that we would love to talk to you about that maybe this morning you're a believer and you just recognize that there's something in your life that man you have you have hidden it and you have allowed it to grow and to fester and you just need to get it off your chest doesn't mean you have to come before the whole church and confess everything but maybe there's just an individual. Maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe it's someone else here that you just need to go to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It may be embarrassing. But I don't want to be enslaved to it anymore. I don't, want to be, I don't want it to be my master anymore. I don't want it to hold me back anymore. I don't want it to continue to grow and fester my life and keep me from the love of Christ anymore. I don't want this guilty feeling anymore. I want to know the celebration, the innocence of salvation. This morning I pray that you would do that. That you wouldn't hide it anymore. That you'd get it out. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. You're welcome to stand with us and sing and to proclaim God's glory in that. You're welcome to come to the altar. You're welcome to to move about and if you need to go to somebody to do that, But this morning I pray that we would respond to God's word.
Let me pray. Father, we come before You and Lord, we thank You for the way that You love us. Lord, it is a radical, crazy love that You have shown us. That You stepped out of all of eternity. That You stepped out of the riches and the glory of heaven. The praise of all of the angels. You stepped into human flesh. You stepped into uh, into our, our time and that You lived a perfect life. But then You willingly and voluntarily laid down that life to pay for our consequences. To to make sure that we had the opportunity if we respond to You in faith and in trust, that we have the opportunity to know You as our Lord and Savior, to know have a relationship with You and to experience life in a, in a grander and an eternal way. That You do whatever it takes, Lord. We, we could share testimony after testimony that You do whatever it takes in Your pursuit of us that we may know You Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be astounded by that this morning. That we would be willing to worship this morning because of all that You are and all that You do. I pray that we would be a reflection of those things to our community and to our members that our great love and our mercy and our great grace would be known. But that we are concerned with the souls of men and women, boys and girls. That we are holy because You are holy. Not, not that we pursue or, or that we are perfect on our own, but by Your grace and Your mercy You have declared us innocent. Father, that we desire to be ambassadors to this place. Father, I pray all of this in Your holy and righteous name. Amen.